yuan has sort of gained strength versus the U.S. dollar has maybe wrong-footed some people. I, I think it's, you know, on the one hand, a strong renminbi is good because um, it would normally get Chinese consumers spending more, especially spending more um, overseas. But I think there's going to be some concern that this is going to make Chinese exports more expensive over the long run, right in the middle of exports finally starting to recover. So I think that the, the government's going to be watching things closely. And also deflationary, presumably, for the economy as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 another uh, real concern. And I, I think that there's this broad um, you know, macro picture. They're looking at the currency and, and deflationary pressure. At the same time, they're still looking at you know, issues with food prices and, and you know, pork and you know, other consumer mm. staples that are, are putting pressure on you know, portions of the Chinese economy as well. Ben, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. That's Ben Cavender, Principal at the China Market Research Group up in Shanghai. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, let's look at the markets. The ASX 200 in Australia, uh, down about a quarter of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan, off a third of a percent. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng, though, is going to move in the opposite direction and rally about half a percent at the open in an hour's time. In the commodities markets, uh, gold slipping a little bit now this morning at $1,926 an ounce. And uh, Brent crude oil is at $42.30 a barrel. That's also down on the New York close. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do please stay tuned for Back Chat with Hugh Chiverton and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast, mainly fine. Uh, maximum temperature of about 30 degrees. There is the standby signal number one in force at the moment. It is windy with heavy rain tomorrow and on Wednesday. The seas are going to be very rough with swells. But the rain will ease off in the latter part of this week. 26 degrees right now, 75% relative humidity. 8.32, here's Pierre Tremblay with the half-hour news. The U.S. State Department has criticized the arrest of nine people in Hong Kong who are accused of attempting to help 12 people charged with or suspected of protest-related offensive uh, offenses and fleeing to Taiwan. In a Twitter post, spokeswoman Morgan Ortegas said the, U the Hong Kong administration should instead help free the 12 who are detained in Shenzhen after being picked up by the mainland Coast Guard. There have been international appeals for Ar Armenia and Azerbaijan to heed a ceasefire in Nagorno-Karabakh, which should have taken effect on Saturday. The Armenian authorities in Stepanakert, the main city in Nagorno-Karabakh, said it was again being shelled. Armenia has denied carrying out what Azeri officials have called a war crime after rockets destroyed housing in Azerbaijan's second city, Ganja. Hikmet Hajiev is a senior advisor to the Azeri president. It was a deliberate and indiscriminate attack with the sole purpose to kill civilians and to cause a panic among Azerbaijani civilians. And it once again demonstrates that Armenia is not serious about the peace talks and we agreed about the humanitarian ceasefire. In the immediate aftermath of the ceasefire, Armenia attacked Azerbaijani cities. Activists in Belarus said more than 400 people have been detained in a brutal crackdown on protesters demonstrating against President Alexander Lukashenko. The security forces acted swiftly, deploying water cannon and stun grenades as demonstrators took to the streets of Minsk and other cities for the ninth Sunday in a row. The BBC's Jonathan Fisher reports. Sunday's demonstrations in Belarus's capital, Minsk, now follow a familiar course. Tens of thousands of people marched through the streets, demanding President Lukashenko step down. And he responds by sending his security forces to beat and arrest as many of them as possible. What makes this weekend different is that on Saturday, President Lukashenko held a long meeting with a group of political prisoners in jail. 
It's the first indication, after more than two months of protests, that he just might be willing to negotiate with the opposition. Another of President Trump's tweets have been given a disclaimer by Twitter to alert its users it may represent misleading and potentially harmful information related to COVID-19. He tweeted what he called a total and complete sign-off from White House doctors meant that he couldn't get COVID-19 and was now immune. Mr. Trump later spoke to Fox News. It seems like I'm immune, so I can go uh, way out of a basement, which I would have done anyway, and which I did, because you have to run a country. You have to get out of the basement, and uh, it looks like I'm immune for, I don't know, maybe a long time, maybe a short time. It could be a lifetime. Nobody really knows, but I'm immune. So so the uh, president is in very good shape. Next news at 9. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chivers and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today we're talking about voting outside Hong Kong and the latest developments in COVID-19. It's widely reported that in a policy address this week, the chief executive will announce plans to set up polling stations on the mainland for Hong Kong residents living there to take part in our elections. While the pro-establishment camp backs the proposal, the pan-democrats said if confirmed it will be a blatant attempt to rig the elections. Well, what's the reason for the change? How would you regulate polling across the border? Is it possible for the pandems to canvas votes in the mainland? Should it apply to Taiwan? And what about the rest of the world? After nine, we're going to be talking about uh, COVID. A leading microbiologist has warned that more than a thousand people could die from the disease this winter unless social distancing measures at high-risk venues are properly implemented and cited places such as restaurants, bars, wet markets and care homes. Do you agree? Let us know your thoughts. As ever, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us, and our telephone number is 233-88266. That's 233-88266. We're going to talk about the voting uh, issue in just a moment. First of all, a few uh, emails uh, related to uh, discussions uh, last week and a few other uh, issues. Kim uh, is uh, taking us to task for uh, our coverage of the Boer War. Uh, Kim says, After Britain invaded the Boer republics, the British army invented the use of concentration camps to oppress people in South Africa in 1900, leading to 48,000 deaths in those camps. The camps were set up to get black people off the land so the Boers couldn't get supplies from them, which also enabled landless black farmers to be used as forced labourers on gold mines. The Nazis picked up on the idea of using such camps I expect silence from some of your hosts and listeners on any atrocities by Western imperial powers. Not out of shame or disgust, it's because of efforts of a deliberate campaign to demonise China and its people, who have long been victims of oppression by the West, so as to prevent any discussions of Western state-perpetrated mass atrocities and genocides. Some outdated, narrow-minded Western commentators, as well as their poodles, peddling a modern form of neo-imperialism fused with racism and nativism still believe in their baseless perceived superiority that is from kim ching says did you want to comment i i thought the, the camps locked up the white people the boers the Dutch. it was mostly white people yeah he seemed to be i thought the, 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 there were black people as well like, right <clears throat> who, who died yeah okay. but it was predominantly yeah white people yeah, the dutch settlers from yes Europe. the boers yeah that's right. Okay, uh, Ching says, uh, and there's some discussion about whether it was uh, whether they invented it 
it had been done by the Americans in the Philippines uh, previously. Um, uh, Ching says, online influencers in Britain, beware. Yeah, you might still be able to attack China, Russia, etc. online, but attempts to criticise the British government online could soon be criminalised within months. Seeing a necessity when Hong Kong's national security law was introduced this July... Boris Johnson rushed to update Britain's 1695 treason law to make it more like Hong Kong's. The revised law will prevent Brits from secretly accepting cash and help from foreign sources to commit acts which destabilise the country. In a language strangely similar to Beijing's, the former Home Secretary declared, quote, uh, national security is a necessi- necessary first line of defence, unquote. A new espionage system section would be used to arrest influencers who don't share the values of Britain, the US and other members of the Five Eyes, according to the Daily Mail. Johnson wants this done within months as soon as possible, but of course preferably done discreetly with as little media coverage and opposition as possible. In address to his party last week, Johnson also accused the whole, quote, the whole criminal justice system of being, quote, hamstrung by what the Home Secretary would doubtless and rightly call the lefty human rights lawyers and other do-gooders, unquote. We feel you, Mr Prime Minister. Governing is tough without those powers. That is... Uh from Ching. Herman says the local education sector should get on its knees and apologise to all of Hong Kong for creating a generation of students who are so competitively disadvantaged they will struggle to find work in international settings and forget about working in the mainland or Taiwan for that matter. And finally, Andrew Kay says uh, to the Hong Kong Observatory, really? Signal one again? For a storm that's tracking south of Hainan, smacks of the civil servant cover my ass syndrome. Are we ever going to get this weather advice? Uh, are we ever going to get weather advice under this regime? Uh, thank you very much indeed for those comments. Joining us for the uh, to talk about the issue of voting outside Hong Kong, we have now Emily Lau, former Democratic uh, Party lawmaker and uh, leader of the Democratic Party, uh, and Andrew Lung, an international and independent China strategist. Emily Lau, good morning to you. Uh, what, uh, Emily Lau, what do you think of this plan? Uh, yeah, what do you make of it? Well, I think it's just madness. It's really crazy. And they are going to turn our electoral system on its head. And uh, But, of course, I think they, they, the one reason that Carrie Lam decided to uh, postpone the electrical election this year, for one year at least, was that, you know, they fear that the uh, pro-communist camp would lose the electrical election very badly, like they lost the, legis- uh, the uh, district council election in November last year. So one way to rescue them is not to regain the trust and support of the Hong Kong voters, but to include uh, Hong Kong people who've moved to the mainland to live, particularly in the Greater Bay Area. But, but how do you do it? I mean, you really have to uh, tear the electoral law into shreds and rewrite it. And, and, and to give, they say there are about half a million or whatever number of people living there, giving them the right to vote. And how do you carry it out? How do you monitor the voting? Right. How do you do the campaigning? How do you count the votes? It's crazy. Uh, Emily, just give to them those are all very valid. Life. Very valid comments on the practicality, but go half a step back. What's the intellectual justification that's being offered for it? 
I, I just well, don't understand. You mean uh, the current law? No, I, I understand people who live somewhere vote about how to run the affairs of that place. I don't understand the justification for people who don't live here having a vote here. That, 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 that's also true. But they, they say that these are Hong Kong residents, so they should have a say. But there are many Hong Kong residents living all over the world. Many live in Taiwan, which is quite close by, or in uh, the UK, or in Canada, Australia, the United States. So should they have a vote too? Of course they say no. They say, oh, because these are people living in China, the Greater Bay Area. So I say, well, good. Why don't we give all the Chinese people one person, one vote, if they are so keen to have the vote? Uh, the reports in the South China Morning Post today are suggesting that it won't just be the Greater Bay Area, it'll be the whole of uh, China. Uh, there will be polling stations set up in, in the major cities, uh, in, the, in the Hong Kong offices there. Uh, <laughs> is, is, that, is that right? Yeah. Is, is that, <laughs> you're laughing. Uh, how, how can we, how can the Hong Kong political parties who intend to send candidates to stand... How do they campaign? How, uh, many of us don't even uh, have home visit permits. We are not allowed to go there. And, and who is going to monitor the conduct of the election? Uh, you may say, oh, you do it inside the Economic and Trade Office, and uh, Hong Kong officials there may, may take some part. But what about outside the office? They have no, no jurisdiction. And uh, so it would be up to the public security or the national security to enforce it. I mean, this is just madness. How are they going to count the votes? Who is going to monitor the counting? I mean, really. But I guess because they want to do it, and then, of course, today or tomorrow, President Xi Jinping is going to be in Shenzhen. And Carrie Lam, I've read in the press today that she's going to cancel her policy address or postpone it because that's supposed to be on Wednesday, and she's going to be going to Shenzhen. And maybe the president will <laughs> tell her that it is a very good idea and she must do it. And then the other day, Secretary for Security, John Lee, was talking on television about cooperating and collaborating with the Shenzhen police. So Hong Kong police is going to merge with the Shenzhen police. So Hong Kong is really going to merge with the mainland, uh, and one country, two system uh, will be finished. Uh, I mean, this is an old problem because this is done all over the world. People, you have uh, overseas voting for very many democratic countries. Um, th th I mean, there are certain problems, there are certain issues, uh, but they're done. You could be a Canadian living in, as far as I understand it, you could be a Canadian living in Beijing and you could vote in the Canadian elections. Am I, am I wrong? I mean, they manage that. Why not Hong Kong? Well, I think, uh, actually, Legislative Council, I think the Secretariat should have done a study on all this overseas voting system. So let us have a look at that. But it would take time to discuss it, to, to try to uh, put it in place, and not suddenly spring it on the community and say, oh, we want it done by March, because the election is going to be in September. It's crazy. Yes. And because our law says you have to be ordinarily resident here, and these people are not ordinarily resident in Hong Kong. So you say, oh, it doesn't matter. Just 
scratch it out. That's quite a broad... Law. I thought there was no completely definite, definitive uh, definition of what uh, ordinarily resident wouldn't, means, is wouldn't it? it? Wouldn't it normally mean that someone is away for a while from their home with the intention and, and a reality of always going back to that place? Yeah. I, I think Mike is right. You'll be away for a while. Say you go away to study. But for people who have moved over there permanently... And some would even admit to you that they don't really have an address here anymore because they don't have a, a flat or they, they don't. But now we want to change everything to give them the right to vote. And then how do I know that they are going to uh, vote for someone, for electrical member in on Hong Kong Island? Or in New Territories East, where I used to come from, or I think, I think the suggestion West. I think the suggestion there was that they would use their last last address in Hong Kong in the same way that prisoners can now vote, as I understand <laughs> it. Uh, but they and they use they don't use the address of the prison; they use their last residential address. Is that, How do you verify it? Who is there to help you to verify? And it? what happens if he's been knocked down? <laughs> Okay. Uh, I think it's crazy, really crazy. It just would turn us into a huge, huge laughing stock. All right. A Andrew Learn, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, what do you make of this plan? Well, I think the reality on the ground is that um, um, more and more uh, people, especially uh, elderly retirees, uh, are going to go to the Greater Bay Area and other, and other cities uh, for their retirement. Uh, also, um, even... Um, uh, workers uh, in Hong Kong uh, are going to find more opportunities uh, on the mainland. So I think that this is a reality on the ground. And as many as half a million people uh, would be uh, doing that or would have been doing that. So uh, against this background, I'd like to make a number of points. Why should um, half a million Hong Kong citizens have their right to vote Compromise because of logistical barriers. No, because they've, for, for they've chosen one, to well, move me, away, let me, Andrew. Let me, let me finish. Um, uh, bearing in mind, of course, the, um, uh, in response to the earlier point about people um, not, not being really resident in Hong Kong, I mean, democratic countries, as you pointed out earlier, you know, allow the citizens who lived overseas to, to vote. So I think well, that's the first point. Why should half a million Hong Kong citizens have their right to vote a compromise because of logistical barriers. The second point I'd like to make is that um, why should uh, logistical barriers be taken advantage of uh, by any political party? Um, so I think, that, to be fair, um, it, the government has an obligation uh, to make it easier to allow these people to vote, for either party, for that matter. Thirdly, um, about political campaigning, where well, it's quite unlikely that Beijing uh, would allow any political campaigning on the mainland, but that applies to both parties. And in any case, um, people who are living uh, on the mainland are unlikely, unlikely to be swayed by last-minute political campaigns but, anyway. What, what about not campaigning, but what about election material? What about just basic information about the candidates? Well, I think that um, uh, these people are not actually segregated from Hong Kong entirely. They may have their friends and relatives, and they visit Hong Kong uh, from time to time, and most of them, you know, uh, through all the, throughout their, their lives, or, the, or so many years in Hong Kong, they're familiar um, which political party is doing what uh, for Hong Kong, and they should have the right to choose. But would you accept that, the, that there should be some basic communication, that you should be able to send... 
I mean, because we all receive information about the candidates, don't we? And there's information shared. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So that, 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 should... can be, that can be overcome, obviously, um, because uh, it would be totally um, a travesty uh, of, uh, of, of, of electoral justice for these people to be denied uh, alternative candidates. Uh, but I think that that can be easily overcome. Now, the, the one valid point, though, is the um, uh, verification. You know how I could verify the results? But I think that that, that can also um, be addressed. You know, for example, you know, people you know, have to, um, um, to, to use their fingerprints uh, or, or use modern technology, uh, and that could be uh, the, the, the votes could be uh, collected and, and verified in Hong Kong afterwards, and people could challenge that. Um, but I think that the overall, um, the basic tenet is that, you know, why should so many people be, uh, have their votes, uh, right to vote, be compromised because of uh, logistical barriers? And this is a, a reality on the ground. It's going to happen. Andrew, um, this is yeah. dreamland stuff. These people have chosen to go and live in another community, whether it's in Vancouver or Toronto or Sydney or Manchester or wherever, or many in Guangdong province. But this wasn't forced upon them. They no. chose to go and live there. No. They should be voting in Dongguan or Shenzhen no. or Guangzhou. No. That's where they now live. Yeah. Well, they, but I, I said, well, as they I, were I once said, Hong Kong citizens. As, as I said at the beginning, um, uh, democratic countries around the world do allow the citizens they to do. vote, uh, even if they lived overseas. But, I, but let's be... Uh, if they uh, are uh, temporarily uh, overseas, reality, going they're back. not living overseas, they're living in the same country. Yes. So, um, so I think that this, this um, uh, reality has got to be grasped. But I agree that you need to uh, find a way uh, to make sure that these candidates have uh, aware. Well, well uh, stop a minute. If someone born in Shanghai, if someone who used to live in Shanghai migrates to Hong Kong, um, and they, we give them the right to vote in Hong Kong because they now live here, should you, by the logic you're using, should they still have the right to vote in Shanghai? Yeah, well, I mean, but these are Hong Kong citizens, you see. No, 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 no. You said the reason these Hong Kong citizens can still vote in Hong Kong is because they're still in the same country. Yeah. Right. Now right. apply it the other way around. A Shanghai citizen migrates to Hong Kong. We give him the right to vote because he's now a member of our community and he's concerned with what's going on here. By well, your logic, he should still have the right to vote in Shanghai. Well, but, that, but then um, we have one country, two systems. And the one country system <laughs> preserves the systems in China, which under which people do not have the right to vote. And the and system Hong in Hong Kong, Kong is you have to be ordinarily resident to vote in Hong Kong. Which, well, I mean, uh, uh, that comes back to my point about um, logistical barriers. No, 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 it's not logistical barriers, it's fundamental logic. If I live in Dongguan, I'm concerned with the parks, the refuse collection, all the other municipal services of Dongguan. That's where I should be voting. Not back in Hong Kong and voting, voting for LegCo even. No, but these are Hong Kong citizens. Yes. They, well, they, they, they do not have the... <laughs> I mean, unless they're Chinese citizens... Um, I don't think that they, they, they would be allowed to vote in the, um, the village elections in China, for that matter. Well, you, just said, you just said they were. Uh, we're all we're Chinese talking about citizens. Hong Kong people. We're not talking about um, uh, Chinese uh, nationals um, uh, living on the mainland. We're uh, talking about Hong Kong citizens who have the right to vote, uh, who lived uh, in the Greater Bay Area as part of China. And they are um, uh, subject to Andrew. Hong Kong's one country systems. And their rights to vote need to be protected. 
Andrew, this is Emily Lau. Are you suggesting that Hong Kong people who've moved to other countries uh, who are still Hong Kong permanent residents, uh, there is no such thing as Hong Kong citizen, my dear friend. They are Chinese citizens, but they are Hong Kong permanent residents. Are you suggesting that they all should be given a vote too? Well, I think, as I, as I said, um, Chinese um, um, citizens or mainland citizens, uh, they are subject to the laws on the mainland. But I, I think the Hong Kong uh, citizens um, are subject to the laws in Hong Kong. And under the laws of Hong Kong, they have the right to vote. And this right to vote needs to be protected. No, uh, Hong Kong, and, no, and no, sorry, sorry, no, no, no. Hong Kong residents. Hong Kong permanent residents. Should Living Hong- in Canada, in Australia, in the UK, in Taiwan, can they vote too? Well, but then they are not in the same country. With whoa, Hong whoa, Hong whoa, Hong whoa. You're saying Taiwan is not the same, same country? Same country. Mm. On the mainland. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's the physical boundary of the country that determines whether they have a vote. It's not your principle. You don't have a principle, actually, do you? No, but but that, but then of course um, uh, people who lived um, uh, 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 abroad, um, they are they are not um, they, they 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 are Hong Kong citizens, and they they of course they, they, they are Chinese are citizens. But we're talking about people living in the same country, um, wow. and then uh, they should not uh, have the vote uh, right to vote compromised by logistical but barriers. But not 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 people. Then you're saying people overseas, Hong Kong permanent residents, they shouldn't be allowed to vote because there have been suggestions that they should be allowed to vote. Are you, you're saying that Hong Kong permanent residents living in, say, Canada, they should not be allowed to vote. Is that no, right? No, no, I didn't say that. Of course they should vote. They can vote. And in fact, a lot of people who've got Canadian passports are in Hong Kong. Yeah, <laughs> but in Canada, no. no I'm, talking, of them. I'm talking about people who, 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 live in, who live in Vancouver, nevertheless have Hong Kong permanent residency. They should be allowed to take part in Hong Kong elections. Is that what you're saying? Well, I don't see why not. Oh, okay, I'm just just clarify. Yeah. Should we put? They should. So the the issue of whether it's the same country or not is not relevant. Well, no. Um, what I'm saying is that, that the fact that they live in the same country, um, and uh, and they should not have their right to vote uh, being compromised by lots. But that principle barriers. applies. Uh, that principle applies everywhere in the world. If you're a Hong Kong permanent resident, you should get a vote. Is that your stance? Well, um, I think that. Uh, if, if um, a lot of people in Canada uh, or, the, or other parts of the world, uh, Hong Kong citizens still, um, and they've been, most of them uh, come back to Hong Kong uh, quite fre- frequently. But if they live abroad and want to vote in Hong Kong, well, I think that that should be addressed as well. Should be, should be, should be allowed, should be, should be permitted. Well, I don't think that they should be denied uh, the right to vote if they are permanent Hong Kong citizens. How about ballot boxes for them? How though? about what? How about putting ballot boxes for them in Toronto and Vancouver? If we're going to put ballot boxes in Dongguan and Guangzhou and elsewhere, and presumably Laza, wherever in the mainland Hong Kong residents yeah, and citizens exactly. live, are we going to have the, those ballot boxes as well for them in Sydney and Melbourne? Well, uh, I think nowadays with technology, uh, I think that this, these problems can be, can be overcome. I, I mean, you know, sort of um, voting, um, you know, to sort of uh, by post or, or by... Um, uh, by electronic <laughs> means, uh, provided they are properly verified. Uh, right. Let's say, exactly. I mean, Hong Kong Andrew, identity card number. How are you, you going to monitor it, Andrew? Well, I How think that the system needs to be, to be devised uh, to verify these u
um, as I said, I mean, um, nowadays with technology, and then Hong Kong's permanent citizens have their ID cards, and then also fingerprints, things like that. Um, <laughs> it's not beyond the bounds of, 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 of uh, you know, possibility uh, that a proper system could be devised. <laughs> but I think the basic point is that you can't mm. deny more than half a million Hong Kong people, Hong Kong citizens, uh, and have the right to vote. Should, and should they pay tax? Should, your, um, presumably they should also pay Hong Kong tax. They should pay Hong Kong tax, should they? And, and, and residents, Hong Kong residents living in Vancouver and so on, if they've got a permanent residency, they should pay Hong Kong tax? No representation without taxation? It's normally well, the other way around. another issue. I mean, we're talking about election here. But what is their, what is their right to decide uh, uh, issues where in yeah. a community where they no longer live? Say that again? What is their right to participate in the political debates and decisions of a community where they no longer live? Well, I think that uh, they can uh, reflect their views in another way, but obviously people live on the mainland or people live in, in Canada or, 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 or some even live in the United States, you know, do not... Uh, are as active in, in taking part in political debates. I mean, that's the, is the fact. We've just got 30 um, seconds, but Emily Lau, I, I just wanted to, yeah. to, 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 right. to get your view. I mean, this, as I say, this is widely done in, in other places. Uh, and also, we, we, have, we, we make special arrangements, for example, for the payment of social welfare for people who have retired and live in the Greater Bay Area. And that seems very humane. That seems to be a rational thing. It's really just an extension of that, isn't it, to recognise that there are Hong Kongers who live outside Hong Kong? Well... I, I don't think people have raised any question about paying their welfare. But this one is very controversial. And we have just flagged some of the problems in the last 20, 25 minutes. So if it is so controversial, it should be discussed properly. But now it seems they are going to bulldoze it through. And even listening to Andrew Lowe, I Okay, sorry, sorry, we, sorry, we're we're out of time. Beg your pardon, uh, Emily Lau. Thanks for for joining us uh, this morning, former Democratic Party lawmaker and, and uh, Andrew Lung. Uh, we we'll talk about COVID after the news. Twenty six degrees at the moment. Humidity seventy two percent. For I don't know, maybe a long time, or maybe a short time. It could be a lifetime. Nobody really knows. But I'm immune, so so the uh, president is in very good shape. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back, back chat, uh, first one of the week this Monday morning uh, with Mike Rouse and me, Hugh Chiverton. We were talking in the first part of the programme about the uh, proposal for uh, voting uh, to be uh, extended uh, uh, outside Hong Kong, possibly to the uh, Greater Bay Area, possibly to the whole of the uh, mainland or mainland cities. That's a proposal that has also been uh, floated. It's one of the things which we expect to be uh, discussed in the policy address, uh, which is coming up uh, on uh, Wednesday. Uh, this week. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as far as we know, uh, unlike, uh, I think, the last 15 years or something, there will be no chance to talk to the uh, chief executive on the matter of the uh, policy address. In the past, there has been a, a phone in uh, in Chinese uh, across channels uh, and also uh, in English. Uh, as far as we know, that's not being done uh, this year, uh, which is a shame. It was actually done by the uh, Chief Secretary uh, last year. Nevertheless, we uh, we expect the uh, policy address uh, to uh, go ahead, uh, as far as we know, uh, on uh, Wednesday. Uh, there was a question about that. Jim says, uh, grateful if you could let your listeners know when this will be, the date and time. So that's this uh, Wednesday, so that's the... 
14th of October at uh, 11 o'clock. So, Mike, you were saying that they used to be done in the afternoon. I thought they was always done in the morning. Well, I'm very old. So two problems with that. One is I remember a long, long time ago. And then secondly, sometimes my memory goes wonky. So <laughs> I do remember... Under the British administration, was uh, it uh, in the afternoon? Uh, was, it was, was it? Okay. Yeah. I seem to in remember. In the early years of the SAR. Right. In uh, the early years of the SAR. Yeah. Well, remember, we're 23 years old already. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, yeah. I thought you were casting back to the Boer War there. Uh, <laughs> on that a topic... Uh, Which I remember well. Yeah. Matthew <laughs> has uh, emailed us. Uh, saying a response to uh, listener Kim. So listener Kim is clear on definition of concentration camps under the British and the Nazis. I assume he or she must also agree the same definition applies to what is being done by our government in Xinjiang. Uh, Alan says on voting, allowing absentee votes from Hong Kong residents outside Hong Kong is a joke. Just give up on the charade of elections. Who living in the mainland will trust that they will not be punished if the vote is other than the approved CCP candidate? Of course, they want to exclude all those Hong Kongers living in Western countries. When I leave Hong Kong, I will still feel connected to it, but I should not have the right or really the knowledge to decide things for those still living uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, and uh, on yeah, one more on the uh, voting. Uh, Lewis says uh, adopt postal voting, the favourite voting method of America's orange buffoon. That comes from Lewis. And uh, on COVID, Paisley says, Media reports supported by video footage clearly indicate that a number of restaurants and bars are breaching the COVID-related social distancing rules. To help minimise the risk of virus spread, they should be given a verbal warning for first offences and a hefty fine for second offence. A third offence should result in the establishment losing its licence. This threat of closure should hopefully give the owners sufficient incentive to reconsider their current lax and irresponsible attitude. That comes uh, from Paisley. Joining us now, we have Professor Benjamin Cowling, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong, and Dr Alvin Chan, paediatrician and council member of the Hong Kong Medical Association. Uh, Professor Cowling, uh, good morning to you. Uh, good to talk to you uh, again. Um, so we had uh, Yung Kok Yung talking about, you know, a thousand deaths um, possible uh, this winter and the need for social distancing, I guess more targeted um, social distancing uh, measures uh, in Hong Kong. Do you agree with that? And do you agree with this, this, this possible thousand deaths? Uh, so every winter in Hong Kong, on average, we've had about a thousand flu deaths. So a thousand COVID deaths would be like a typical flu season in the past 10 or 20 years. Uh, and we don't shut down the city for flu. Um, I think the scenario is much more serious than Professor Yoon uh, hypothesized. Uh, in New York, if you remember back in March and April and May, there were 20,000 deaths from COVID in a relatively short space of time with an epidemic that didn't really uh, infect everybody in the city. I think the, the attack rate was maybe 15% of people in New York were infected, and that was 20,000 deaths. So that's what we're concerned about in Hong Kong is a really large, uncontrolled epidemic. But I don't think that would ever happen because we're so good in Hong Kong at dealing with COVID. We know the kind of things that we need to do. We're already doing test and trace. Everybody's wearing face masks. That's not been enough to stop transmission in March. It's not been enough to stop transmission in July. And I don't think it'll be enough to stop transmission in October. 
we need a little bit of social distancing, and I agree with Professor Yoon that targeting the social distancing measures to those most effective and least disruptive measures would be the right way to go. I don't think we'll have that many deaths this winter as long as we do a good job, as long as the government brings back the social distancing measures that we needed in March and in July, and that people do the, the right thing. People in Hong Kong are very savvy. They know when it's time to stay at home, when it's time to avoid crowded places, and they do their part as well. Yeah. We've spoken several times, Professor Gowling, about this. Um, it, common sense suggests that the most dangerous places, frankly, are bars. People standing near each other, talking loudly, because there's often some music in the background, um, and drinking. And as they, be, as they drink, they become more relaxed and less disciplined. Is, is if we look back at the last six to nine months, some of the largest outbreaks we've seen in Hong Kong have occurred in bars, also karaoke, leisure facilities. There's been outbreaks associated with gyms. There have also, of course, been outbreaks in other, other locations, uh, other types of things. So we do need to think about what are the right social distancing measures to implement. And you can imagine there's a list of maybe 10 different things the government could consider in terms of social distancing. Closing bars and nightclubs is one of those 10 things. But if you imagine what's the value in terms of preventing COVID, closing bars has a lot of value. It's really a, a worthwhile intervention. And then you think about the disruption to the community. Of course, there's an economic disruption to the bar owners and the staff, which the government needs to address. But it's not as disruptive as some of the other social distancing measures which have been in place in the last nine months, like uh, preventing large gatherings of people in general, like the restaurant measures where it went down to two persons on a table, civil servants working at home, closing schools, etc. So the bar closed. The bar closures does seem like a, a very sensible measure to consider right now. Right, and and yet the beaches are still closed. Yeah, I, I can't fathom why beaches are considered more dangerous than bars right now. I get the feeling that some of the decisions are being taken by people who don't do those things. Well, there's also economic implications. We have to understand that we can't stay in a, with heavy social distancing, with almost lockdown for the next six to 12 months. We have to have times when these measures are relaxed. And that's not just for Hong Kong, that's the same everywhere in the world. Uh, so I understand why the measures have been relaxed. But at the same time, when case numbers start to go up, if we don't act soon, then the numbers will get bigger and bigger. And then we'll need even more interventions to bring the numbers back down again. Uh, there's been talk of uh, making testing compulsory or giving the power for compulsory testing. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Is there, is there any need for that? So we already have compulsory testing in three circumstances. People mm -hmm. who arrive from outside of Hong Kong at the airport are tested. People who are determined to be close contacts of other cases and need to go to quarantine camps are now tested. And the third one, uh, it slips my mind for now, there's, there's another one as well uh, where, where testing is mandatory. So I think we can consider expanding that, but I'm not sure exactly what the government's thinking about when they talk about mandatory testing. Um, who exactly are they are they proposing to, to, to make the testing mandatory and why? And I'm still waiting to hear more details of that. Mm. Uh, Dr Chan, good morning to you. Yes, good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us. Um, uh, are you worried about the winter looking ahead and uh, as the weather changes and the temperature goes down, will we be facing new, fresh problems? 
Um, definitely, because the virus would survive longer in a colder temperature. That's what uh, we know from the characteristics of this virus, like the virus of uh, influenza as well. And uh, for Hong Kong, I think uh, we have been uh, quite good in universal masking and uh, establishments of those hygiene habits of the citizens. Well, of course, uh, but the government's part um, is something that we are concerned. So, in fact, in July, the outbreak of the third wave mainly uh, stemmed from the exemption of testing of some uh, seamen, those uh, crew members entering Hong Kong, you remember, and the exemption of quarantine. And so that's why the sailmen, uh, sailors had uh, brought the mutated virus D614G into the city at that time. And then uh, at that time when the citizens were all lax because of the relaxation of the restrictions at that time in late June, and that's why the third wave erupted. And uh, 70 elderly and other citizens had died because of that first third wave. So in Hong Kong now, we only have just a few um, confirmed cases every day uh, uh, with some unknown origin um, every day. Uh, that is the source of worry, but not as big as the one that we had um, uh, expected. If there were exemptions again, somebody had brought in the new viruses or mutated viruses from um, overseas or from other areas. So I think, first of all, uh, we hope that the government won't allow um, those unnecessary exemptions and that are dangerous. Right. And uh, uh, for the mandatory um, uh, testing for the high-risk high groups, and um, I, I think, um, as uh, Professor had mentioned just now, that's already been uh, carried out in some high-risk groups. What they are talking about is if people go to private doctors uh, or government doctors, and they have suspicious symptoms. Um, uh, the doctors want the patients to have testing, but the patients refused and did not comply. Even if you give them bottles, they didn't return the bottles with specimens to the Department of Health. So you can do nothing about it. So I think um, the, uh, I, I am also co-chairman of the Advisory Committee of Communicable Diseases in Hong Kong Medical Association. So we also are thinking about this, and I would think that uh, one way is that uh, we would have to notify the Department of Health whenever there were suspicious symptoms in patients that we are seeing in the clinics or the hospitals, then we have to notify the Department of Health, and then the Department of Health will have the mandatory power to, to ask the patients to have the testing. Mm -hmm. Because the doctors can do nothing about it. We don't have the mandate. We don't have the power to ask, uh, to punish right. those patients. Dr. Chan, how would we stand on data privacy in a situation like that? Uh, I think well, there are uh, notifiable notify diseases which can be notified based on, on symptoms alone. But this seems like an extreme measure that if, if the idea is that doctors are supposed to report on their patients to right. the Department of Health, maybe it would just turn people away from going to the doctor in the first place. Right. If I if my if my knee aches, 
you know, why should I be forced to have a, a test? I, whenever, whenever there is a notifiable disease, it means the Department of Health can have the power to right. investigate. And that is uh, not an issue of uh, privacy. If uh, you have any notifiable disease, we need to report, say, even even um, mild uh, patient, uh, say, for example, but flu, or, uh, say, um, other uh, leprosy <laughs> and other diseases that are notifiable. So right. uh, that is, uh, all, um, well, overrule, but that override would, the... Right. Uh, there would have to be symptoms, though. Is that what you're saying? You'd well, have to show suspect, some symptoms. You couldn't just be... Well, we suspect, yes, 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 of course. Yes, of course. Uh, right. not, not, not the asymptomatic ones. We are talking about right. uh, uh, those... Uh, with symptoms. Now we are talking, uh, even yesterday, Professor Yun was saying that testing those with symptoms uh, are much more cost-effective and much more uh, productive than testing all those asymptomatic ones in the universal screening. Right. Is that right? So um, what we are talking about, those with some symptoms, mild symptoms, say even cough, some even could have dyspnea, um, uh, uh, or some could have uh, uh, vomiting or abdominal pain. These could be symptoms of COVID-19. If the doctor has suspicion, then of course the doctor could say that uh, he's worried about uh, COVID-19, but the doctor had no power to force the patient mm. to, to do the testing. None at all, uh, just as what uh, Mike has said, we, we cannot override the privacy uh, issue. But the Department of Health, if they have this notification system, they have. Right. Dr. Chen, I see that you're a paediatrician. Yeah. Um, we now have, what, nine, ten months' experience with COVID-19 yes. from all over the world. Are there reports of distinct differences between age groups? Uh, how, could you comment on that? Uh, uh, of course. Uh, even in Hong Kong, uh, very few um, children would have suffered from COVID-19, and when they had suffered from COVID-19, they tend to be milder, not as fatal as those elderly. Uh, that is a fact. Uh, but however, we still have to um, protect the children from uh, the um, infection because these children could spread, if infected, they could spread the disease to the elderly, and that could be very serious, first of all. Secondly, all over the world now, uh, especially uh, in the Caucasians, uh, we found that there is a serious uh, complication if children could have infected, got infected. That is called MIC, MISC. That is a multi-system hyperinflammatory uh, disorder. And that is uh, the children could suffer from um, uh, vasculitis, generalized vasculitis, and so the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the liver, and even the brain or everywhere could be involved, and that is deadly for the children as well. And uh, well, this resembles somewhat like the Kawasaki disease, the Kawasaki syndrome in the past. Uh, well, I, I think uh, so even the children uh, would not uh, be immune from getting infected and were being killed by this COVID-19. But luckily in Hong Kong so far, um, mainly Chinese uh, were, um, well, we, we seem to uh, rarely see 
uh, children get infected. That is true, but we could not be complacent about it. They could always be the first case anytime. So, but then, uh, so that's why we still were be cautious about uh, social distancing and universal masking and the uh, limitation to the activities of schools open to children and students. Uh, but I agree with you, of course. Uh, you, you didn't say that, but I, I still say that um, uh, children seem to be less vulnerable to the deadly effects of the COVID-19. Uh, but these children in the families, they could spread to the elderly and the elderly could suffer. Um, in Hong Kong, most of the elderly that had died or suffered from COVID-19 are those in the old-aged homes, uh, not really in, in the families per se, uh, did not get infected in the family per se. So I, I think uh, that is good in Hong Kong. We have quite good uh, the uh, uh, um, general hygiene uh, being upheld in Hong Kong. Okay, uh, this is a, an email from Jay who says we are not getting the true numbers because in these flu seasons we have many people who have not caught flu or different viruses because of the face mask. We have many old people because they've been wearing face masks, have not got so many respiratory problems because of dust and pollution. Many of the bars and restaurants could be kept open if they had even more plastic shielding on the tables and if people wore clear visors. I've just been to my child's primary school today and each individual table is surrounded by three plastic walls. That comes uh, from uh, Jay. Uh, I mean, Benjamin Cowling, are the things that, you know, bars, for example, could be could be doing in care homes, uh, even wet markets, these places that have been highlighted as, as, as risk areas, could we just be a bit more careful in those places? So that's three completely different mm. settings that you've mentioned. In bars, they've had months and months and months to plan what they want to do when they reopen, to reopen safely. And I think we've seen um, that the measures that have been taken are not sufficient so maybe we could imagine if the bars were to be closed by the government in the coming few weeks, they could think again about how they might want to reopen more safely next time round, so the bar closures wouldn't be needed. In care homes, those are not high risk for infection with the virus. Actually, they're relatively low risk for getting infection with the virus, but there's a high consequence. That's a difference. So if a virus does get into a care home, it can have enormous consequences. We've seen a third of the deaths in our third wave occurred in care homes. So there were not a lot of infections in care homes, but when infections did occur, they were very, very nasty. And probably the best way to protect care homes right now is to start regular testing of staff in the homes, maybe on a weekly basis, maybe even more frequently, so that if there are infections and then early stages of outbreaks, we can stop it more and more quickly. And for wet markets, I'm not aware of any transmission in wet markets in Hong Kong, to be honest. Um, I think any enclosed area, whether it's a supermarket, a wet market, other kind of shops are locations where transmission. But I think we should consider all of those locations together. I don't think there's anything particularly <laughs> dangerous about wet markets as opposed to all kinds of other supermarkets and shops. Okay, that does remind me of a recent uh, study in the news suggesting that uh, the virus uh, is very, very hardy on smooth surfaces and um, money uh, was mentioned and uh, phone surfaces, the glass on phone surfaces can survive for weeks uh, on those surfaces. Uh, does anything follow from that? Should we 
stop using money, Benjamin Cowley? I think we need to be a little bit cautious about those studies. So those are studies mm-hmm. in laboratories, in ideal conditions. Uh, in, in reality, we haven't seen a lot of examples of, of transmission through surfaces, through money. Um, we know that theoretically it can happen, but it doesn't seem to be the main way that transmission occurs. Most of the time when, we are, when, we, when we're able to figure out how transmissions occurred, it's prolonged close contact with people who are known to I be mean, infected. Some, some places don't, won't take cash now. A few places won't take cash. Is that, uh, does that make sense? Oh, I mean, it's okay. It's, okay. it's good to go, to go contactless, to do payments that way in general. Um, but I don't think the money itself is a, is a big hazard. And we have alcohol everywhere. All of the shops have alcohol at the, at the entrances. So uh, I, I don't think that's a, a place we need to focus on a lot. I think reducing prolonged close contact between people, particularly groups of people, would be the priority. Okay. Uh, Leon, in an email, says uh, European COVID cases are skyrocketing. Why on earth is the Hong Kong government still refusing to add all European countries to its list of high-risk countries? By allowing returnees from these countries to spend their 14 days quarantine at home rather than in designated hotels, the government is simply increasing the risk of spread among the local population. The government should act immediately to correct this obvious error. Dr Chan, do you agree with that? Any thoughts on that? Obviously, uh, France, say, for example, had a very high uh, infection rate now and also the mortality. So, say, for example, I think it's rational to uh, add France and Spain, for example, to the list of the uh, quarantine uh, tourists from those, those countries or returnees from those countries. Uh, now we just included uh, UK and India, America, etc. Right? Uh, so I, I think it's sensible to increase those places with high infection rates now. And uh, just now you also mentioned about uh, the paperless or uh, the use of money. I just uh, like to remind us that, uh, say for example, in China, mainland China, in Wuhan, the first place that had erupted. In China, most people just use uh, PayPal or WeChat, and they didn't use paper money anymore. And uh, still, they got erupted there uh, in ex- explosive ones at that time. So I think, uh, as, as uh, just now Professor said, uh, the use of paper money might not really be that uh, significant, except as a theoretical risk. Uh, and also, I would like to... Uh, add one thing is that uh, vaccination against influenza seems to benefit. Uh, at least there could be less chance of co-infection of influenza and COVID-19. And when there's infection uh, of COVID-19, the um, uh, co- co-infection of uh, influenza could be deadly as well. So we encourage more vaccinations uh, of influenza this season. Unfortunately, it seems that we don't have enough uh, vaccines in Hong Kong, as usual, because every every year uh, there's not too enough uh, vaccines allocated to the market of uh, Hong Kong. Uh, this year, because of the awareness of the citizens, the demand for the flu vaccines is even greater, and um, the doctors uh, are crying out. Um, uh, the doctors couldn't have uh, uh, the uh, vaccines that they had ordered. Even they had ordered, 
the pharmaceuticals could not supply them. And that is a problem. So uh, we have to ask the government to take care. And if necessary, there could be stockpile uh, accumulated in the government. They might have to release some to the private doctors. And then they have to negotiate with the pharmaceuticals so that they could import more influenza vaccine right. to Hong Kong. That's one issue. Can that be addressed quickly by the government? <laughs> uh, of course, that's a commercial issue. Uh, so that might not be able uh, to fully comply to the needs of Hong Kong this year. But the government needs to know that, uh, the, uh, obviously, the government is much more powerful than individual doctors. The individual doctor had already cried out in despair. They couldn't have the vaccines that the citizens need. So the government has a role to play here. I don't know whether the government could uh, help. But at least, if they want to help, uh, they are more powerful than individual doctors. Right, right because the government is urging people to have the flu shot this year. Uh, exactly. Every year, the government is urging people to have flu shot. This year, they also is urging, but they also have to guarantee that when they urge the citizens to have flu shots, they should also make sure that these could be provided in the private doctors. Otherwise, there would be panic. When the citizens want to get the vaccine and yet it's not available, they would get into panic. Uh, I've got to say, finally, uh, Professor Cowling, um, I think we touched on this last week, but it does seem like the most famous uh, COVID patient of all, uh, Donald Trump, has made a rapid and complete uh, recovery. Uh, is that going to change attitudes, do you think, towards this disease around the world? Oh, I think one of the things that he said was, was important, and that's don't let your lives be dominated by the fear mm -hmm. of COVID-19. And when you look at the political polls in the U.S., it's actually very distinct, the Republicans versus Democrats. Republicans have the same kind of viewpoint, not, not giving in to fear when the Democrats are hiding in the basement. Um, but we have, to, we have to get on with our lives. We've got another 12 months of this before a vaccine's available. So we have to enjoy the times when case numbers are low. And when case numbers come up, we do need to... Uh, support the government's social distancing measures and, and do our bit to reduce transmission um, and then look forward to the next break. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us once again, Professor Benjamin Cowling there from the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Dr Alvin Chan, a paediatrician, council member of the Hong Kong Medical Association. Thank you very much indeed. Jay says, now many places have machines to spray your fingers with disinfectant or alcohol. How efficient is this? It's certainly a good idea, especially if people are touching vegetables and things in the food market. And uh, quite a few uh, emails and uh, uh, mention on our Facebook page of the uh, issue uh, of voting. Um, uh, Kishore said on Facebook, the pandems are making a mistake. They should be pushing for anyone with a permanent ID card outside of Hong Kong to be able to vote. Mail-in ballots are the answer. Yan says, totally agree with voting outside the border, but don't forget the large Hong Kong communities in Sydney, Vancouver and London. And Elizabeth says, and uh, Toronto. Uh, Matthew responds, Kishore, the pandems are making a mistake. Seriously? Come on, it's impossible 
for any genuine informed observer not to understand that this proposal is entirely controlled by the CCP and designed to serve their self-interest by removing the risk that the pandems can win a majority in LegCo. They will not let us have an election until this problem is solved and they think that making it easier for patriotic Hong Kongers with business interests in South China to vote will do the trick. As soon as they are sure they can get the result they want, the LegCo election will be held, irrespective of the COVID situation or any other factor. Mail-in ballots for all permanent ID card holders outside Hong Kong would be great, but it does not serve the CCP's interests, so it will not happen, no matter what the pan-democrats or anyone else says. That's how a one-party dictatorship works. Nevertheless, we should all stand up and fight for it. It would be great to see community leaders like yourself and all the Zubin Foundation add its voice and directly push for the government and CCP to do this, rather than positioning it as a pan-democrats mistake. TC says, uh, as a uh, Hong Konger living overseas, I believe that this is a form of discrimination against me. Under the proposed arrangement, one group of Hong Kongers living outside Hong Kong is getting preferential treatment over another. Why are Hong Kongers in the Greater Bay Area the only Hong Kongers outside the territory to enjoy the right to vote in Hong Kong elections? Now, why are only the cities of mainland China, not other areas like Harbin, Inner Mongolia or Taipei, an area that the PRC considers its territory? Now, it's always been my belief that it's the Hong Kong SA our government policy to make it difficult for people to vote because most in Hong Kong vote non-establishment. On another note, in my Canadian provinces elections, there are many ways for citizens to vote without being at the polling station on election day. Advanced polling is available as well as mail-in ballots and uh, attaches a, a photo, some photos uh, of that. Uh, TC also says, uh, re-Emily uh, Lau's comment, just one second... Sorry, let's get back to that. Uh, Re-Emily uh, Lau's uh, comment, how about the DC super seat? Those members of LegCo, in theory, represent all of Hong Kong. Should Hong Kongers living outside Hong Kong have the right to vote for that? That comes uh, from uh, TC, who also says, Mike Rouse's statement, uh, uh, Re-Mike Rouse's statement, first, US citizens living permanently outside the US can vote in their presidential elections uh, with laws such as FATCA. Uh, American laws have consequences to its citizens living abroad. They should have a say in who they run the government. Uh, second, for Hong Kong people like me, although I live in Canada, I frequently return to, count to Hong Kong and spend significant amount of time and money in the territory. Why are you excluding me from having a say in how the territory uh, is run? Uh, Jim says, I've lived in Hong Kong for more than 15 years. Having left the UK, I'm not allowed to vote in the UK. This is as I've lived outside the UK for more than 15 years. Surely the same type of logic should apply and the people who've left Hong Kong are not entitled to vote. Also, your guest lungs seems to be a government apologist and is making it up as he went along. Did you also hear him say Taiwan was not part of China and was its own country? And MT says, thank you Mike and Hugh for doing Emily Lau's job for her and presenting some logical arguments rather than being blinded by hatred of the government and failing to be an effective opposition that presents alternatives. That's from MT. MT, thank you very much indeed and uh, to everyone else and all the other comments. Mike, MR, thank you very much indeed. I'm going to vote for her. Gets me a flu shot. Okay. <laughs> the weather many fine. Maximum temperature 30 degrees 27 degrees at the moment with the standby signal number one and the relative humidity 69%. Legislation on national security in Hong Kong is designed to safeguard national sovereignty.